This is Retails, Conversations with Profit Protection, the podcast that talks direct with retailers about all things loss prevention, with your host, Nicole Smith. Did you know that the Profit Protection Future Forum is the only not-for-profit industry body promoting the interests of retail loss prevention professionals in Australia and New Zealand? Hi there and welcome to the show. On today's episode, I'm talking with Carly Richards, Retail Lead for Risk Consulting at KPMG Australia. In a previous life, Carly worked in the retail sector with Argos and Home Retail Group in the UK. And here in Australia, Carly worked with Target for nearly three years, where she started off as the head of business risk. Thanks so much for joining me today, Carly. That's okay. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Online fraud is always a hot topic at the PPFF meetings. Um, And I guess this is still a relatively new space for profit protection to manage. So I'm interested to hear how you found yourself in this area and what strategies you've put in place and whether or not, in your opinion, online fraud sits within the traditional loss prevention scope. All that in one answer. I know. (laughs) Shall I start at the beginning? (laughs) Well, so let's start at, let's, yeah, let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your previous roles in retail. How did you get into retail? It was my Saturday job when I was 16. So, um, you know, as most people working to retail, it was my Saturday job. I was at um, school doing A-levels. Didn't quite know what I wanted to do with my life or when I grew up. So um, kind of really enjoyed it. Like the team environment, like working with customers, like the diversity and versatility that retail brings. And I'm really lucky that 30 years later, retail still serves me in terms of having a great career and I've met some really brilliant people across the way. So how did you get into loss prevention in particular? Uh, I ran a small little shop called Brixton in South London Mm -hmm. for Argos and uh, it was a new store. Um, Brixton, if you want to look it up, was probably um, one of the biggest inner city crime centres of London, in (laughs) South East London, and therefore um, and was had quite a bit going on. Right. So we opened a new store. Um, it doubled its sales in the first six months. It was the highest shrink store on record. Which, But Argos is catalogue ordering, isn't it? Uh, so Argos has 30,000 SKUs in the back of house, which means the traditional issue of external shoplifting theft only really applies to about 25% of the chain that have got a larger footprint from a sales floor perspective. Um, what we find in Argos, given the type of product that it stocks, which is jewellery, general merchandise, electrical, you know, Mm -hmm. iPhones, mobile phones, all of the things that people want and desirable products in terms of video game systems are often the subject of internal refund fraud or internal theft or significant levels of burglary or robbery. Mm -hmm. So um, I had this little shop in Brixton that had um, the largest shrink number on record and I'd arrested 25 team members in the first six months of trading. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So it kind of became a bit of a... So it kind of became a a bit of a, this is a point of, I kind of did it every day, right? So investigating, understanding, looking at shrink. But you weren't loss prevention then, you were store store manager. manager. Yeah, (laughs) store manager. So um, I worked quite closely with the loss prevention team at the time. And um, we did a number of things around how do we create the better environment? How do we really change the culture in terms of the store? How do we put some places in to identify um, externally and internally people that are stealing of us more often and how do we really get to grips with what does a great risk assessment process look like from an LP perspective. Um, the security team as it was at the time, for, and this would have been in 2001, had never um, employed anyone from a stores environment before. Traditionally they were all ex-police officers 
I was the first non-police officer that joined. They put me through a detective's exam and my role really, (laughs) which I passed. (laughs) Um, um, So my role um, was really about how do we look at the high shrink stores and try to figure out what processes people leadership needs to change in order to reduce um, or stop the hemorrhage of loss that they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. So I probably worked with 25 of the highest profile stores in London, which would have been a combination of Lewisham, Brixton, Croydon. (laughs) I kind of spent my time in all the nice areas of town and and really kind of worked hard around how to train people to really kind of how do I make sure that I'm maximising my customer offering and identifying how I can stop losing money. Okay. So how did you get from the UK to here, apart from Um, the obvious on a plane? So over the next 10 years, yeah, I got on a plane. (laughs) Um, Over the next 10 years, I did a number of roles for Argos that kind of went from an investigation role, so leading a group of investigators, to going back and running a number of stores. I was an area manager, so operations to risk. I've tried to get out of loss prevention a number of times in my career, but it keeps calling me back. Um, Why would you want to get out of it? uh, Because I kind of have this view that I like running shops and and working with groups of people from a leadership perspective to make better environments for customers. And loss prevention is often the bad news story and Mm. you're often the bad news fairy. Yes. And tend to be the people whose call people don't want to take. So, you know, it's it's almost like whether you want to be in the half glass glass half full space Uh or the half glass glass half empty space. I'll try to get my head around that. so I did a number of roles. The last role I had for Argos was the, um, and I did a bit of a group role with Homebase as well, was um, was a shrinkage and compliance controller, which is... Well, that's a sexy title. Yeah, not really. Um, <laughs> which was looking at a number of things, which is end-to-end um, stock loss from a Omni, from a distribution centre. And just to give you a perspective, Argos had 13 distribution centres in the UK. Wow. Yeah, an island and, and 750 store locations. So looking at investigations, looking at audit compliance, looking at stock take, looking at shrink, um, and looking at it from a group perspective in terms of systems and processes that enable that to happen. I did that for about three and a half years and kind of thought, what's next? Um, And then I got a little call from someone saying, um, we might have a job for you. Do you fancy coming to live in Australia? And I thought, why not? I thought life should be a bit of an exciting journey. Yeah. So five and a half years ago, and I got on a plane and, and, you, um, and you wound up at Target. Yeah, and still here. Yeah, fantastic. Hmm. So then how was the transition between retailer to consultant? Uh, I had a number of roles at Target, and the last role I had was um, uh, really GM of shared, of shared services, which really means that you're an internal consultant anyway. So I had a number of things that I was responsible for. Um, one of them was internal audit and managing the KPMG contract. One of them was investigation security and stock loss of which you don't own the number you're facilitating and consulting on the number Mm -hmm. a number of it was in risk management so running risk workshops facilitating you know risk mitigation measures um i looked after ethical sourcing so really kind of setting the standard from an ethical sourcing perspective across asia and i also looked key yeah love it loved it um uh, business risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really important. Um, and I was really lucky enough to work with the Accord after the Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh and work with um, kind of how to set about doing living wage across Asia with some of the global retailers. So really ma- loads of opportunities. It was brilliant to really understand how does retail work from an end-to-end perspective and was fortunate enough that Target kind of gave the position 
the authority that it needed from a who do I report into? I report it directly into the CFO. Mm-hmm. It was really independent and considered to be independent from the rest of the business. I had a great team um, and it was a really good two and a half years. So and then- set up a number of things, including online fraud, really starting to think about how can we make it work for us on an omni-channel environment and um, how do we use data mining in, in, a, in a kind of more dynamic way. Okay. And I met you, Nicole. That's right, you did, many years ago. Yes. <laughs> so can you see any particular differences between retail in the UK and retail in Australia? Yeah, there's probably, um, I think collaboration is probably the key difference. So um, I think loss prevention, profit protection, security are considered to be non-compete um, in the sense of it's all people working together to make to improve the environment and to identify the perpetrators mm-hmm. of theft and fraud. Therefore, there's much more of a collaboration across industries to share intelligence, um, to share best practice in, in a really non-compete way. Why do you think we don't do that? I don't here? know. I've, I've asked the question a number of times um, and we do it in bits. And I think we talk around it as if it's a, as if it's almost in competition with one another. Like, you know, I don't want to share what I do and I, I don't want you to think about me being better or worse than you. Actually, I think if we put egos aside and just said, how do we make this a better working environment for uh, working environment for team members, a better trading environment for customers, and how do we put the focus on profitable sales rather than how do I stop people from shopping with us? I think we'd find that we work better together. Mm. Um, I also think um, what else is different is the um, is really where the role sits in organisations in Australia in terms of whether it's a head of LP role. Um, I think there's much more in the UK that it's that it's board reportable yep. rather than sits within retail, which it tends to sit a lot of time here. And the concern I have with it sitting in retail is you're often marking your own homework or perceived to be marking your own homework. How can I really challenge the status quo when my boss is responsible for the number I'm meant to be supporting? Yeah. So when I first sort of came into the industry, there was... LP di- reported directly into yeah. CEOs or CFOs. And I I, um, I had this conversation with Wendy Marshall about I, I can't pinpoint when it changed, when they dropped a few rungs on the ladder, and I don't I, – I can't work out why or how that changed. I think there's from, – from my experience, it's almost cyclical. So there's a number of reasons that can cause the change. One of them is my shrink number's really good. Why do I need you in a superior position? Um, some of it is the fact that you're doing a someone comes in they do a cost cutting headcount reduction yeah. and those key roles go as part of that and I think the third reason is because what I try and encourage heads of LP LP managers to do is understand the value that you bring to an organization and be able to articulate it so if it wasn't for me and my team the stock loss number would be x if it wasn't for me and my team the um, level of people that could perpetrate crime against the organisation would be X. As a result of what we've done, we've been able to stop Y. And I don't, I don't see a number of people, um, a number of organisations from an LP perspective that do that well. Yeah. And I think the better you can do that, the likelihood is that you get the team that's right fit for your organisation. You get the tone, you get the voice that you need in terms of getting people to listen to you, and ultimately you protect yourself from any of the. Um, cost-saving initiatives that might come your way, whether that's capex, opex, and um, or from a um, headcount perspective. Yeah. So tell me, how did you get involved in the online fraud? How did you get so interested in it? A uh, couple of things. Um, if you know about Argos, Argos is probably one of the first. Uh, it's considered to be top five online retailers in the world. So you've probably got um, Amazon, and you had eBay, and you've got some of the other marketplace that are coming into play now. 
but probably Argos had its first online transactional website in 1993, oh. um, which is it was a significant number of years before it started really happening. Yeah, and that's because it kind of fits its business model, right? It does furniture, it does washing machines, it does a number of things that are difficult for people to pick up from a store. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result of that, um, I got involved in online fraud for a number of reasons. A, um, it, it started off being using counterfeit credit cards in store. So it was really about how do we stop the use of counterfeit credit cards in store and how do we support, which is a organisation called APAX in the UK, which is a central repository that houses bad debt data. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, APAX, all of the banks and lending establishments and retailers have a central repository which stores information on bad debt, either by postcode, by bank account, by credit card data, which means if I'm running online analytics as a retailer, the first question it's going to ask is a decision that says to the two APAX that says, do you know this card? So it kind of, it's almost like collaboration at its, at its best because yep. it's kind of saying, how do I collaborate around data and how do I make decisions around data that makes retailers, that supports the environment, which is reducing the number of counterfeit credit card and the ability for that to be perpetrated in the environment. So I started off working on that. And then because Argos does, at the time, was doing probably 50% of its sales or transactions online. And to give you a view, Argos is a $4.1 billion, billion pound business. Wow. So that's an awful lot of transactions that go through the online yeah. space. And we had a um, one of the learnings was we had a really big team. And part of what they were doing is kind of going, how do I get to the three decisions that you need to make in any online transaction as a fraud team is what do I reject? What do I accept? And what do I refer? Refer being what's the stuff that the fraud team are going to have to do a bit more work over? Mm-hmm which in my view often means I'm just going to stalk their social media profile, (laughs) um, which kind of probably doesn't give you the answer that you want or ask the customer to give you more information about themselves, which may mean giving passports, driving license or a number of other things, which gives two issues. One of them is not really a great customer service story. And secondly, you've got to figure out what you're going to do with information about them that you're not meant to have. Yeah, I was going to say the privacy issue. Yeah, so I started really getting into it about then and then... As we were moving into more real-time collections, what I mean by that is order now, pick up in 10 minutes, which is what Argos were moving into. And this would have been in 2012, just to give you an idea. Gosh, because that's only sort of starting now. Yeah, so six years ago, I was having conversations with providers that say, I want you to give me a decision in two minutes, two seconds, 10 seconds. I need, I, I can't have refer anymore. So we need to figure out how we're going to do better fraud profiling around online fraud rules to get a decision that's either accept or reject. Because I haven't got time to refer. The customer's coming in five minutes. Mm. So So that's kind of what started it from a UK perspective, really. And seeing how we could do that and challenge ourselves to think differently. So what solutions did you deploy to combat online fraud? I'm probably better off talking about solutions from a target space. Because Target or the other retailer that I worked for, we had a different challenge which was how do we start to think about how we layer solutions so how do we have a you know the standard online solution that says how do I set some fraud rules in how do I really understand what um, what my acceptable fraud rules are so how I would do that is to say there's three measures that I've always looked to talk to around how best to manage fraud one of them is it's really important that you balance allowing customers to shop on your website So I see a number of retailers that prevent international sales 
And I kind of think, God, how is my mum ever going to buy me a birthday gift if all of the websites in Australia prevent her from shopping with them? Yeah. So how do I maximise the ability to customers to shop for us, particularly first-time customers when you know less about them? The second piece is how do I minimise my chargebacks and therefore the impact fraud is having on my P&L? And the third piece is how do I minimise the number of transactions that go into refer? Because refer means my fraud, time aren't be- fraud team aren't being efficient. As a result of that, um, you kind of really need to, to turn it on its head and go, how do I have a more proactive approach to fraud management rather than a reactive approach to chargebacks? Mm-hmm. And what do I mean by that is um, the role of the fraud manager when it's done well should be about how do I integrate myself within the key business groups, either I'm selling different products online, I'm gonna, my omni-channel offer is going to look slightly different in terms of speed and ability to pick up and locations, I'm thinking about going international. I'm thinking about receiving international. And how do you start problem solving those out straight away to put them into your fraud rules that sit within your fraud analytics solution, Mm -hmm. which is a basic decision thing that says, I accept the order, I reject the order, or I refer it. So the refer bit is, and then every, sorry, so every three months, Um, I would normally sit down with my fraud manager and go, what do we know about our current fraud profile? Is it working? How do we turn the rejects, so the people we've said no to, how do we know how much of that was genuine fraud and how much was that they were just, they were different to what we know great customers as being? So how do we move those into yes by really enhancing our fraud rules? How do I reduce the number of referrals? Because it's unlikely my team's getting any bigger. So therefore I want to force the tool I pay for to make decisions on my behalf. And then how do I, from the accept stuff, how do we get machine learning into there that says, how do I get to know more and more about these customers to allow me to make more customers into a yes and identify the customers that are committing fraud from us. So, so there's you, a number of different tools. How do you get the fraud rules right? Um, I think... Is so, it just playing around with them? Is it going in hard and then softening them up or...? I, I don't... Going in hard probably doesn't make you popular with your other business counterparts because if you want to reduce fraud, the easy way to do it is set fraud rules that are really tough that stop people from shopping with you. And that's not the art of what we're trying to do here. <laughs> I think that's when we got to remember at times we are retailers and our job's about profitable sales and how do we do that in the most profitable way. So if we take a um, the reject transactions, we would do a piece of work that said, can you give me some of the analysis that tells me why we're rejecting these transactions and whether if we'd have changed our fraud rules they would have got through and how many of them would have would have been fraud as a result of it. And we found that probably 30% of them were just a, if we manipulated our fraud rules slightly differently, so we asked more information, it went through a different level of sorting, we did a different layering approach, which I'll talk about in a second, we'd have got more customers to shop with us without impacting our chargeback percentage. Mm-hmm. And we did that every quarter. So it's really about looking at What's causing my chargebacks? What's causing my rejects? How do I reduce my referrals? How do I know about what's causing them analytically? And how does that inform the decisions that I'm gonna make? And working with your provider, right? Because this is a partnership before your provider. It's in both of your interests to maximize the work that their system's doing for you and reduce the level of effort that you're doing internally and move that effort to upfront planning. Mm, Absolutely. Does that that mean? Yeah. Um, the other piece is there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for fraud. So we also would have a bit of a layering approach that said, I might have a bulk standard rules-based decision that just says, yes, no, are you a new customer? Is your credit card known to me? Is it part of a chargeback before? Is that address a bit dodgy? 
all of those things that might change the kind of profile of that particular decision. And then on top of that, you might have a rule that says that if that said, well, I'm not sure, I'm 50-50 on this, you would move it to the next decision it says, which is kind of something like email that says, how long has that email been in operation for? Um, so if it's a day, it might it might indicate that that's fraud. If it's been around for three years, then it's probably likely to be um, okay. legitimate. The next one would be, how do I look at whether there's bot activity in it? So mm-hmm. there's a tool that you can get that looks at not necessarily IP, because IP is no longer really relevant because you can do proxy IPs through Starbucks. But it's really about saying, how do I know the time and date stamp and a number of other things in the from the user perspective that tells me that this isn't a person doing this particular work? The idea being is also is that you make it easy for the customer. So, so what I've tried to do is not make the fraud rules visible from a customer perspective. Customers should just be able to shop. Yeah, absolutely. So I've tried to make in my time most of the fraud rules be um, behind the scenes working rather than you know doing some stuff that other people do about bot transaction, tick the box or anything else that sits up front. So I've tried, I've tried to where possible, and it's not always possible, to put it in the, in the background rather than at the foreground. I think that's important because, you know, we all do online shopping and when you have to have all those measures in place, yeah. then as a customer, you're sort of going, gosh, when am I ever going to do this transaction? Yeah. The other thing is, is, is I think it's really difficult to identify what does fraud look like in online shopping because they're better at, they're better at it than we are. Mm. Let's be honest, they spend their day thinking about how they can circumnavigate systems in order to get what they want at the end of it. I know. And that's a huge thing. Like. People, that's all they do. They just sit there and work out how they can beat the system. Or they set up, you know, systems that do that for them. Yeah. And they're looking at, and you're also looking at just like you're making sure that you've hardened your target really. Um, What I tend to do is also it's important to learn what does great customer shopping behaviour look like so you can replicate it. So if you know that this person always purchases once a month, once a week, once a year, the address is always the same, the credit card's always the same, the value is almost the same, then to be fair, you should have a light touch fraud approach to that, which will reduce the amount of money that fraud costs you to manage, Mm -hmm. but actually make sure that people get through really quickly. Yeah. So that's how I got into it. Okay. So what was your most challenging investigation that you've had to do? From an online fraud perspective? Yeah. um, I don't don't know whether it's... um, So because of the work we do up front... I don't do I do very little online fraud investigations, including the Facebook stalking element of it, because by doing all the stuff up front, it means that you should be reducing the level of chargebacks you do and therefore the level of investigation you have to run. Um of course there's still investigations, but they're not necessarily challenging. The challenging bit is getting people to take notice of the investigation that you're trying to present to them and get them to do something about it. Do you mean internally or do you mean uh, by external? external? police and you know just really understanding why this is an issue and 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 trying to think about the importance of it and and that was probably um more challenging in the uk than it was here because of the volume of online fraud there was on a retailer did 50 percent of their business online Mm -hmm. so the volume of that and and wanting to make sure that it was considered to be important um as they were decriminalizing potentially shoplifting and criminal damage was probably quite challenging so did you win? Did you did were you able to get the police involved and interested? And uh, I think where I think the, the the where you can win, not necessarily always win, is to present it effectively present the case file to them, which almost just goes go and arrest them. This is where they live. This is what they've been doing. This is the evidence that I've got, uh, which I think we all know really is the more information you can give them, 
And I also think to not make the assumption that they know what this crime means, how it's perpetrated and, and what it looks like from a data perspective. I think you just need to make that as really straightforward as possible. What about the most successful investigation you've had? Um, from an, There's probably two. From an online perspective, it was probably more in the cyber space mm-hmm. um, and how Bluetooth devices were used to get customer details and customer information. And this is probably before some of the PCI stuff. And just getting your arms around the reputational damage of that and all the rest of the stuff that come with it is quite challenging mm-hmm. and did that successfully. Um, from a non-online fraud perspective, it was probably a series of armed robberies where it went on for about 18 months and the UK weren't particularly great at um, wanting to look at series-linked crime. So they only look at what was on their police force area. So getting someone to take, uh, and it wasn't armed robbery, it was guns to the head, let me in the shop, take the money out of your safe, um, was an interesting 18 months, which <laughs> resulted in um, a number of people being arrested at the end and, and actually... Um, generated a different approach to how we looked at team member safety and the kit that we put into stores to protect them. Okay. So what about the challenges of investigating online versus bricks and mortar from a loss prevention perspective? Because they're, and I guess this is where the question of does this online fraud piece sit in traditional loss prevention? Um it always has for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've never run a, a, a loss, loss prevention team that doesn't have online fraud um, as either a dotted line into where I sit or a fixed line into where I sit. And um, and I would suggest that there you can't think about Omni and then segregate where fraud sits because it's highly likely that what's been perpetrated online is also being perpetrated in stores through a click and collect process. So it's segregating it and not having it within a total fraud dashboard, for instance, can mean that you've got a number of people looking at the same thing. I think in a number of cases, online fraud is easier. The good thing about online fraud is there are footprints left in data, and that's much easier than shoplifting, Mm -hmm. where often it's around a point in time remembering and then figuring out what day it might have been and trying to trawl back through CCTV. Everything in an online fraud space is is time-stamped. Yep. Um, So actually, I think if you've got the right team and the right kit and the right intel, um, actually an investigative brain works in terms of how do I figure out where on non-fried sits. I think the reason why it doesn't sit in LP a number of times is because um, we need to do a better job of telling people that LP does analytics and LP does analytics well and it's not just about the traditional police officer role that sits within it. So I think it's hard for LP to do analytics um, because their teams have been cut down so much that they don't actually have anyone that's uh, able to do those analytics, whether they're qualified to do them or to read the data properly, and that that data piece is huge. So I, I wouldn't do it internally, though. I think there's I think I think there's a number of providers that um, can probably do it better, quicker, and cheaper than you can do it internally. And it's just about finding the right one for you and the right fit for you. Um, and then it's about the the role of the fraud person then becomes around the partnership approach with your provider and how do I really understand, how do I facilitate the business and the system by bringing them together to create the right fraud rules? Um, I think that it should sit within LP. I think that um, I think the reason why it doesn't is because of this do LP do analytics question. Mm-hmm. And secondly, because I think it's, it's often in cost within an e-com team and there's a view that if you get LP in that they'll minim- they'll impact the sales opportunity that comes with it and I think that's probably a broader um, 
misnomer that LP has, has got a challenge with, which is how do I know as being profit protection rather than sales prevention? Yeah. And I think that's about the language that we choose to talk about first. Yep, I agree totally. So Carly, we've made it to the final countdown, the last couple of questions. If you weren't consulting, what would you want to do? I'd probably quite like to be a coroner, which I know sounds really dark, <laughs> which is not about talking to dead people. Um, it's more about They the don't fact- answer back, at least. No, but it's also about, I think that trying to explain what happened to people and doing it through solving... Pu- I really like solving puzzles. That's why I like LP. That's why I like shrink, because I think there's an art to how do I solve the puzzle um, and be curious enough to ask the question to get to the end of the puzzle. And I think... Um, I'm into the television program, The Coroner, at the minute, and I kind of think that'd be a really cool job. <laughs> so I'd quite like to do that. Or Bones, one or the other. <laughs> the problem is I don't really like dead bodies, and, and um, I haven't done enough work on really being able to do that analytical thing. They do quite well, so I might be challenged in that space. <laughs> Just a learning opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you could change anything in the retail industry, what would it be? Um, in re- I think from an LP perspective, I think collaboration. Um, I think there is. I think there's a real opportunity to kind of put egos aside, start talking about how do we make, how do we build a better environment, how do we, um, how do we take, how do we insist that we get more from our supplier base in terms of bringing global insights, best practices, and technologies to Australia. Um, and um, I also think it's about how do we catch up quickly because. Um, there's probably the most amount of change that's ever going to be in retail in the next five years. Okay. And your advice for anyone to that wants to get into consulting? Um, consulting to retail. <laughs> um, the bit I love about consulting is I have I have the great honour of being able to work with a number of different retailers and be able to be welcomed into their buildings to have a point of view and a discussion about the business, which I think is awesome and I'm very grateful for. The bit that I would suggest that people do is be clear about what your specialism is and why you're different. There's an there's an awful lot of um, of people that either want to be consultants or people that have a view about consultants, and and that's all good. Um, but I think it's about how do you stand out and and what why is your perspective going to make a difference to a client? And the second part of that question for you is, what about anyone who's wanting to get into loss prevention? Oh, brilliant career. I mean, I have tried to run away from it, but it is a brilliant career. Um, I, I think that we have an opportunity to change the face of loss prevention by, A, um, definitely, and I'd be a big support of this, bringing more women into the industry, in, in particular senior roles. Um, and secondly, we have to start to think commercially. Um, loss prevention is no longer and hasn't been for a long time a role of the detective and the police officer. It is about analytics, it is about commercial thinking, and it is about profit maximisation. And I think we need to change the language that we talk to ourselves about. I'm going to ask another one. So it's not going to be the final three. I've got another question for you then. How do we get more women in in this area, in this space? I think the women that are in this space... um, you know, just I think there is an opportunity for us to talk to why this is a brilliant career and why it can be a brilliant career. And I think we have a responsibility to mentor some of the brilliant women that are coming through in some of the more um, junior and startup roles. Um, and I think we just need to make, um, we just need to stand up for it. The, the women that are here, and we're a brilliant set of women, I think we have a responsibility to talk about it as if it's a great place to work. Mm. 
I 100% agree with you on that one. (laughs) So, Carly, thanks so much for your time today and coming in to see us in the studio. I think this is a really interesting time for retailers as that online piece is growing and and really at an extraordinary rate. And the fraudsters are constantly updating their skills to combat all the good work that's being done in the background. So really appreciate your insight onto that. No worries, thanks. If you'd like to get in touch with Carly, you can find her on LinkedIn and we'll put her details, contact details in our show notes as well. You can subscribe to this weekly podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts and Spotify and there's a link to download episodes and show notes on the PPFF website. This podcast is proudly brought to you by the Profit Protection Future Forum. It is written and produced by Juliet Woolbert and myself, Nicole Smith, and is kindly hosted by Wooshka. In the next episode of Retail's Conversations with Profit Protection, I'm talking to Paul New from the Institute for Drone Technology about drones in retail. We talk about the infrastructure required for drones and how this might assist loss prevention and, most importantly, what it looks like for the customer. I hope you'll join me next week so we can keep talking all things profit protection. Thanks for listening to Retail's Conversations with Profit Protection. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to find out more about the Profit Protection Future Forum, head to ProfitProtection.co or find us on LinkedIn. Drop us a message on info at ProfitProtection.co with feedback on our show.